Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for a healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we'll bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. And welcome back to the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. I'm Lisa Tang. And I'm Sabrina Douglas. And this week, we're really happy to have Dr. David Ma on the podcast. Dr. Ma is the founding director of the Guelph Family Health Study and a professor in the Department of Human Health and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Guelph. Welcome, David, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. To get started, um, can you tell us a bit about your education and research journey and how you got to your current role as the director of the Guelph Family Health Study? Sure. So I'll give you the short version. (laughs) Uh, So I I, uh, did my undergraduate degree at the University of Alberta in biochemistry. And then I uh, uh, was looking for summer opportunities and uh, started working in a nutrition lab uh, with Dr. Tom Clendenin. Uh, that led to uh, the start of a master's and eventually a, a PhD degree in medical sciences, actually, uh, focusing on understanding the relationship between dietary fat and cancer. Uh, then I moved to Texas A&M uh, University in the States in Texas and uh, pursued a postdoctoral uh, degree there for a couple of years and then moved to my first faculty appointment at the uh, University of Toronto. Uh, where I continued to pursue my interest looking at uh, dietary fat and, and cancer. Um, and uh, just to back up a little bit at the University at uh, Texas A&M, uh, I did uh, research on omega-3s and folate in colon cancer. Uh, so I've uh, had a long career in, in cancer and, and uh, particularly, particularly uh, with interest in uh, all aspects related to uh, dietary fat. And uh, then in 2007, I uh, moved to the University of Guelph, where I continued to do research on, uh, on dietary fat and cancer. Uh, but a few years afterwards, uh, it was through chance meetings and discussions that began the early beginnings of the Guelph Family Health Study, trying to uh, move research from the bench to the bedside. And so there was uh, you know, a great appreciation for, for the fact that we have a lot of wonderful uh, researchers at the University of Guelph. Uh, we don't have a medical school, uh, but we have strong expertise in uh, nutritional sciences. And we have two departments of nutrition at uh, University of Guelph. And what better way to bring together groups of individuals with similar interests uh, to tackle big problems of the day. And the big problem of the day was really trying to understand determinants of health beginning early in life. And that began the early discussions of uh, informative discussions, giving rise to the launch of the Well Family Health Study uh, in 2014. And soon after, we started recruiting families, uh, hiring staff, and uh, taking on graduate students to undertake the research. Thanks, David. Thanks for uh, sharing that. It's always so interesting um, to hear people's careers and how they got to where they were today. And and as one of the graduate students uh, that you've hired, thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so I guess our next question really is from your perspective, 
what is the significance of a study like the Guelph Family Health Study? And what long-term goals do you have in mind for the, for the study? The importance of the Guelph Family Health Study can't be understated in that we're really working with uh, people in the community. And it's an opportunity to uh, bring together uh, both researchers working at the university, the academics, with uh, community members who, uh, who, who would benefit from that research. And we have to have, and it has to be a two-way conversation. Uh, it can't be uh, a top-down approach to make research impactful. We really need to see problems from the lens of the community, those that, were, that will uh, be uh, most impacted by the research and contributing to the research uh, as well. The long-term goal is to better understand the, the determinants of health in a gold standard uh, framework. And that gold standard framework is working with people. I also do a lot of research using animal and experimental models. Those are just models, whereas working with people, uh, you truly understand all the complexities, all the nuances, all the challenges that go into health promotion uh, research. So the, uh, uh, the value of the Guelph Family Health Study can't be understated because we're really capturing what are the realities of today and then how can we problem solve to address the issues and the needs of, of families today to support them in their journey towards uh, continued long-term uh, health and, and quality of life, not only for the parents, but also for, and importantly, uh, for the children as they uh, grow up. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you mentioned that you do a lot of work in animal models for health research, and we don't talk about that a lot on this podcast, but a lot of people might wonder why scientists use animal models and what they can teach us about human health. So we're wondering how you would explain this to folks. Sure. There's a, a time and place for all different types of experimental and study models. And uh, so the importance of animal models is it allows us to, to examine ideas that we would not otherwise be able to do in humans. So for example, I study uh, uh, cancer biology and nutrition and in, in experimental models. And so in animal models, we're able to look at the entirety of the life cycle of a cancer in a shorter period, whereas in, in shorter period, meaning in months, uh, weeks and months versus in humans, which may take several decades. Uh, so that's, a, a, I think, a really ex a simple example of, of the power of animal models. Uh, it enables us to study questions in a time frame that is, that is uh, doable. It also allows us to more precisely look at uh, cellular and molecular mechanisms, looking at changes in DNA, changes in how the cells, individual cells work and function. And this is not uh, very feasible in the human context, uh, in the sense that tumors take a long time to grow. They may grow very differently from each other, uh, whereas in experimental models, it's a reproducible uh, model that, that enables us to uh, more readily study the problem at hand. So there's a time and place for models uh, to look at uh, uh, potential cause and effect, the how of what's going on. Uh, but I also want to stress that animal research is highly regulated in Canada. The animals that we utilize in my research uh, get better care than my own children. So uh, it's highly regulated. They're well taken care of. And also uh, we aim to use, utilize as few animals as possible to answer the question that we are interested in, uh, which is in contrast to human research, where we want to 
where we literally want to study everyone. <laughs> uh, right. And in contrast, in animal research, we want to get to an answer with as few few animals as, as possible, uh, recognizing that animals have, have an important role to play, uh, but we also want to uh, mitigate uh, their, their use. Thanks, David. Wow, that's actually a, a lot to a lot to consider, and you gave us a lot of information that I didn't know previously. Just as kind of a side question that I that kind of popped up while you were talking, I, I I guess my assumption would be that these are very specific mice. Like, let's say a mouse was not respecting my property lines, and I happen to catch it. Could I bring it to your lab, or are these very specific uh, animals that you're working with? Uh, sure, great question. Uh, so the animals that we utilize. Uh, are are specially bred. Uh, they have they're well characterized in terms of their, for example, their genetic profile, their their physical characteristics, etc. And so they're not your uh, they're not our garden variety mouse uh, field mouse. Many models are very specialized in the sense that we have specialized mouse models that we can study for cancer, for Alzheimer's, for diabetes, and so these are purposely bred and developed experimental models to allow us to study uh, specific attributes related to certain types of uh, chronic diseases. Wow, thank you for explaining that. Now, in terms of uh, what we see in the media, right? So when we see like a, a scientific headline that says, you know, we've solved cancer and <laughs> it's kind of like this kind of grandiose headline. And then we find out that models were done um, with mice or they were animal models. What are some key things that we need to keep in mind as we're uh, reading or interpreting this study? Yeah, another great question. Um, so knowledge translation and dissemination, uh, communication of science is not an easy task. And newspapers and uh, other uh, such similar platforms, uh, they, they have to sell uh, their, their news. And so oftentimes the, uh, the headlines have to be uh, attention grabbing. So one has to be very skeptical of the headlines and, uh, and to then read the, read the actual uh, details to better understand what's actually going on, what are the strengths and limitations of the studies, and, and so there is a need to be more educated about science and how it works uh, and not to take for granted that, you know, there is a cure, but to know that, you know, there's a bit of a hierarchy of, of research and certainly the default in terms of gold standard is human-based research, whereas uh, all other types of research, be it uh, animals or, or working with cells in a Petri dish, there are models that help give us insights into what's going on. Ultimately, we have to bring it back to the human condition and whether or not the things uh, that are, are very promising in, in, a, in animal models, uh, whether or not they will lead to something that is uh, more, more substantial and concrete. And so science, is, uh, uh, science continues to evolve in all sorts of disciplines. But one important thing to take note in terms of nutrition and, and uh, health research is that well, in particular with nutrition research, it's a very young discipline. It's really only a couple hundred years old, whereas uh, natural sciences like math, uh, physics, and, and uh, philosophy are centuries uh, old. And so they've already gone through their, their period of mistakes and, and uh, contradictions and flip-flopping. Whereas if, you know, in nutritional sciences, for example, it, 
it's almost like every other day the messaging changes uh, depending upon what research group does what and slightly differently. And, and so people are seeing in real time what's, what's going on in terms of the scientific process and the scientific method of observing and testing and then formulating new, new questions and hypotheses to, to continue to challenge those, those questions. But over time, uh, we get to a more precise answer where we have more confidence in that answer. Whereas we see in other sciences where there, you know, it seems to be very concrete and, and people know exactly what's going on. In nutritional sciences, we're still a very, we're still a very young science and we're going to continue to uh, learn and as, you know, in other words, you know, make some mistakes along the way, but those are not really mistakes. That's just really learning from past experiences to build upon our base of knowledge so that in the end we get to a, a stronger you know, point in time where we have more confidence in our findings. Yeah, and I find actually one thing that you said was really interesting about how there was a lot of flip-flopping, but what's different now is that because the nutrition is newer, this flip-flopping sometimes tends to happen in front of the media, right? Like the media gets a hold of this and then, so like you said, flip-flopping, like not flip-flop, but, but new knowledge happened before, it just wasn't done with digital communication technology. Right. So uh, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, how science is done today is much more transparent, open to everyone, and instantly as well. Whereas in older times, <laughs> before we had the internet, it took time for things to you know be communicated through conferences, to newspapers. So science is happening much faster now than ever before. Yeah. And thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's put a lot of emphasis on the scientific process in ways that we haven't seen in the media before. So it's really kind of forced us into learning more about vaccine development, for example, medical science and public health management. There's so many misconceptions in those areas. And so we're wondering, are there any misconceptions about nutritional science and research that you would want to inform people about? Yeah, great segue because uh, I, I, there are many similarities in terms of what's happening with COVID-19 and nutritional sciences. Um, it's happening at lightning speed. It's happening right in front of everyone. Uh, it seems like everyone's an expert uh, and not an expert at the same time. Uh, so I think, you know, in terms of the general public, we have to be very, uh, uh, very discerning of the evidence and the information that we receive. Uh, is it high quality evidence that we're uh, we're reading about, is it from credible uh, individuals? And then I think importantly, though, it's, I think the public now has a greater awareness that there is a spectrum of opinion, even in the sciences. And it may seem like they're polar opposites uh, in terms of what, you know, what the headlines are saying. Uh, but so I think, you know, it's very important for folks to appreciate that eventually there will be a consensus of opinion of the majority of the research out there. So early days, it may seem like it's very polarized, uh, but you give it, a give it some time uh, in terms of more people doing the research in that particular area, uh, looking at the totality of the evidence and the findings, then people are able to make more, more concrete uh, conclusions based on the growing evidence uh, that, that is emerging and accumulating. So it's, it, it seems to be occurring at a dizzying pace, 
but I, I think you know people need to be have I guess have to be a little bit patient uh, because science doesn't happen like they do in the movies where you simply go from one scene to the next and all of a sudden there's a cure. <laughs> uh, but in science, from one scene to the next scene is you know several weeks and months uh, of, of very hard work by many, many uh, very dedicated uh, researchers. And that's been going on in the nutritional sciences uh, for many years. Uh, so I think the takeaway from, you know, in terms of important nutrition messages uh, to convey to uh, families and the general public is that the nutritional sciences will continue to evolve, but we're getting better and better at it. Uh, simple messages about, you know, eating a balanced diet, moving more, and, and really, you know, fitting nutrition within the context of a number of uh, health behaviors is important. Uh, that's also uh, something that we've been learning more about in, in recent years in the, in the sense that there, it, there is no magic bullet, <laughs> uh, but it really is a combination of good nutrition, moving more, uh, getting a good night's rest, uh, reducing sedentary behavior, uh, reducing stress, a whole host of things that go on and contribute to uh, our, our health. Thanks, David. I'm just going to put it out there, though. A magic bullet would be pretty great if that existed. <laughs> it would. Uh, and certainly that's something to strive for. And right. uh, perhaps one day. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of things to uh, also enjoy from the fact that there are a lot of things that contribute to our health. So getting out and having a walk with your dog or, or friends Absolutely. and family, uh, you know, when, when, when safe, uh, getting a good night's rest. These are all beneficial things that I think people will, uh, will, will take pleasure in or Absolutely. can take pleasure in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Getting a good night's rest is, is definitely up there for me. So, so I hear, uh, cause I know you have a number of graduate students, um, that you, that you oversee or supervise. And I hear a lot of really cool things that are going on, uh, in your research lab. I was wondering if you could share with us some of the types of research that you're working on outside of your role with the Guelph family health study. Uh, sure. So uh, uh, for many years, I've been doing research on uh, omega-3s and breast cancer prevention. Uh, so we've uh, uh, had some grants in this area that has allowed us to better understand uh, the different types of omega-3s and their influence on breast cancer risk using exper experimental uh, mouse models. Uh, what we can say is that uh, all types of omega-3s that you find either in plant sources like flax and canola, or, or marine sources, they're all beneficial in terms of, of cancer prevention. And what I mean by cancer prevention, we, sh we are able to show that uh, this, the number and size of tumors are reduced by a third over a lifespan of uh, consuming omega-3s. Uh, what we've also found is that while all omega-3s are beneficial, marine-based omega-3s, and this is the EPA and DHA that you find in fish oil tablets, uh, you know, in, in the pharmacies, health food stores, Costco, etc. Uh, they're probably about eight times more potent than uh, plant-based omega-3s. So if you're looking for a little bit more punch, uh, uh, marine-based omega-3s can give you that. Uh, but I would say that uh, analogous to mutual funds, plant-based omega-3s, which is uh, which contains the form alpha linolenic acid or ALA for short is like a mutual fund. A little bit every day goes a long way towards a healthy uh, life uh, uh, lifestyle. So, so that's been uh, uh, a long-standing area of research of mine, separate and apart from the Guelph Family Health Study. 
In recent years, uh, we've become very uh, interested in the role of, of omega-3s in uh, concussion. And so I've had a longstanding interest in, in trying to understand the role of omega-3s in the brain. Uh, and what we started, what we noticed is that there really is a lack of research in, uh, in terms of omega-3s and brain health in, in this type of injury. Uh, so sports-related type of injuries uh, where you have a mild traumatic brain injury, a little, you know, uh, repeated blows to the head that you that would incur in high-impact sports like football and rugby and soccer. What's emerged in the last decade is that these repeated blows uh, translates to long-term cognitive uh, impairment. And so we've uh, started some early research uh, looking at developing an experimental, in an experimental model uh, to study the role of omega-3s and whether or not it's, it's beneficial. And uh, our early evidence suggests that mice that were pre-exposed to omega-3s recover very quickly from, uh, from a brain uh, insult as compared to mice that were not exposed to omega-3s. And so this is really cool because uh, we're one of very few labs that are, are doing this, pursuing this kind of research. And uh, uh, when we come back from the pandemic, you know, uh, there'll be a lot of sports, uh, people interested in getting back into the swing of things, so to speak. And uh, so it goes to show that nutrition has, has many different roles in our life, uh, not just uh, in health, but also in, in physical activity. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think a lot of people would think about the association between omega-3s and um, concussions. Oh, um, yeah, just to add a little bit further, it, this makes sense because uh, the brain is one of the most highly enriched organs in omega-3s. So if there's so there there's a bit of a cause and there's a, a, a sort of a cause and effect relationship there where if there's a high amount of something, it must mean it's there for a reason. And so what we're showing is that if the brain is properly fortified with omega-3s, then if you get an injury, you're, you're better able to recover as opposed to having a lack of omega-3s and it might take a bit more time to uh, get back onto the playing field. Right. That makes sense. So you mentioned supplemental forms of DHA and EPA, and I'm wondering if you can give some examples of the plant-based and maybe marine um, sources of these things as well. Sure. So plant-based omega-3s you would find uh, abundantly in uh, uh, plant-based oils such as uh, flaxseed oil and canola and soybean oil. Uh, whereas uh, DHA and EPA, the longer uh, chain forms, uh, are found in fish and seafood. Just to add further, uh, some other rich sources of uh, plant-based omega-3s include walnuts and avocados, uh, whereas uh, all sorts of uh, seafood out there uh, would be the primary source of EPA and DHA. And that's where, where these, fat, these types of fats get extracted from and then encapsulated in the pills that you find in uh, supplemental form in nutritional. So I'm thinking about parents out there who maybe have kids interested in science fields, and we're wondering if you have any advice to pass on to these kids or maybe the parents of these kids who want to grow up to become a scientist. Great. Uh, great question. Um, I, I think it's just to try and instill curiosity into um, uh, uh, in, in, introduce science early on uh, to show that it's not hard and, and to also show that there's practical relationships between science and, and everyday life. You know, everyone's got a smartphone. Well, how do, how, how do we make smartphones? Uh, what's the underlying technology? You know, we, we all eat food. Let's, let's figure out what's in food that, 
that makes it healthy or unhealthy. Uh, so I think providing that, that connection between the physical environment and uh, the underlying science, uh, I think is a useful way to, to encourage uh, and instill that curiosity that might one day lead to an interest in, in, in the sciences. I really love that. And I'll uh, keep that in mind with my kids for sure. My husband and I often joke that the worst fate is being an insect in a playground in front of a bunch of boys, because I, when I see them picking up the, all those little creatures and I, I get grossed out, but I think, oh, that's probably not a good fate. They could maybe use with some of uh, Dr. Ma's animal care instructions. <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's similar to what, what we do in, in other areas like sport, you know, if you want your children to be interested in sport, get involved with them in soccer or, uh, or golf or baseball or whatever, you know, uh, or running. And so it's, it's being active with your, your children and uh, providing that, those opportunities. That's great. I love that. Um, so we liked, we could, we've been kind of ending with, uh, some of our guests who are part of the Guelph family health study to talk about their best moment or favorite moment or favorite memory with the Guelph Family Health Study. And we were wondering if you had uh, something to share with us. Well, I, I would say that uh, there are many fond memories. And I would say that uh, there isn't one that stands out in my mind, uh, but I, I think it's been just this ongoing uh, feeling that uh, we're doing something really important, really exciting. We're so fortunate uh, to have wonderful families as part of the Guelph Family Health, health Study and also uh, staff and, and trainees. I have to pinch myself uh, every once in a while because the last uh, seven years have gone by so quickly and together we have accomplished so much in a relatively short period of time. We've uh, delved into so many different areas. Uh, we have such a greater understanding of what's going on in terms of family health now than before. And so, yeah, uh, the, there's many great memories, uh, but it's just really this ongoing activity that, uh, that you just have to pinch yourself to, to, <laughs> to make sure it's not, not really a dream. Thanks so much, David, for coming on the podcast and sharing your insight into your role with the GFHS and scientists at the University of Guelph. You covered a lot of ground from your journey to where you are today, um, the significance of the GFHS and animal-based research, and how to navigate nutrition and science news in the media. So I'm sure our listeners will find what you had to share really helpful. Thank you.